This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today we're chatting with Hugh Dawson. Hugh is a vintage winemaker at Beechworth for Broken Wood Wines, but his passion for agriculture has taken him all over Australia. Hugh's journey started on his family's South Australian cattle operation, but after high school, he found himself as the head stockman on a 2.6 million acre station in the Northern Territory, where he learnt a lot about himself, the Northern cattle industry, and even how to fly a helicopter. Throughout his career, Hugh has been involved with many industry representative groups and mental health organisations. In this episode, Hugh will dive into how he made his way to Outback Australia and why he became so passionate about agriculture, its people and its processes. He'll also share what his goals are for his career and where he hopes to see the industry go on a broader scale. Hugh Dawson is an inspiring young man who has already achieved so much a real leader in the making, who will with no doubt continue to make a positive difference in both regional and rural Australia. Let's jump in. Hugh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here. What sparked your interest in agriculture to start off with? So grew up on a small place down about an hour south of Adelaide. So I get in trouble for calling it a hobby farm. We grew up on sort of 200 and 50 acres with a few cows. Had an early interest to sort of agriculture and the primary industry. His dad's a, a winemaker by trade. So really enjoyed the sort of lifestyle that that, you know, affords someone working in that area. In terms of professionally, it probably wasn't until a year or two out of school, to be honest. I think going through senior school especially, really enjoyed studies around chemistry and, and physics and maths and was sort of pushed and probably fairly so towards a, a career in engineering or project management, something in that sort of area. And I think through school, really enjoyed the process of learning. So finding a piece in a puzzle and and understanding where that fits down the line. For me, year 12 sort of went away from that. Remember this, it'll be in an exam. And so my plan of going to uni, I started to question a bit more and went, well, I don't know if uni is going to be the right fit for me straight out of school. And so I started looking at going and doing a gap year and I sort of set my sights on the the Northern Territory as a, a place I wanted to pursue that. And prior to starting up there, I actually went and did a, a vintage in the um, in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales. And so sort of there, back to the wine and cattle in that respect. And I remember after being on the station for a little while and having not really any idea what I was getting myself into, having my eyes opened up and going, there's actually a whole lot more in ag than maybe I anticipated and certainly nothing that I covered in senior school I think that was the moment that it twigged for me. There is scope to have a professional career in agriculture and probably uh, shifted the needle for me in terms of how actively I wanted to pursue that versus going down that more project management engineering type job going forward. Can you tell me a little bit more about your time up north for the next sort of few years? Oh, I did a little bit of research and and landed on a property called Beeloo Station and, and 
as I was doing my research, I saw they'd done a, a huge, they'd made a huge capital investment in developing water infrastructure and fence lines. And they seemed to be the only one doing it at the time. And I thought, oh, if I'm going to spend a year anywhere, I want to go to this place. They seem to be, you know, on the on the cutting edge and on the forefront. So I got up there and I remember getting to Elliot. Anyone that knows Elliot, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's only a BP service station. I just caught an 11-hour Greyhound bus down from Darwin. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, what on earth have I done here? Like, I can't have made the right decision to, to now be, <laughs> to be in Elliot. In the Northern Territory. And to be honest, for the first month or two, I didn't really enjoy it. We had a couple of pretty strong sort of egos in our crew and I just didn't feel settled. I didn't feel comfortable in what I was doing. And I think if I had a car at the time, I probably would have thought pretty hard about driving home. But I wasn't, I was probably too proud to ask anyone to take me back to the bus station. But then as we started getting into the work and started to understand, you know, what we were doing, I just fell in love with it slowly but surely fell in love with it and it is cliche I think that you know once the territory gets under your skin it's sort of there to stay but that was certainly the case for me and I remember we were working out of the city yards and we'd had rain in that yard about a week or two before with cattle in there and we'd had to let them out and so by the time we got back to the yard you know the cattle had pugged it all up and everyone was rolling their ankles everywhere and it it was pretty tough sort of working conditions and a few of our crew actually left while we were on that job and we were camped out about 50 k's from the homestead and I remember one night we were driving back to our camp and I was sitting in the passenger seat of one of the Toyotas looking at the uh, the sun sort of setting in the silhouette of a helicopter flying over the setting sun and I went actually one more year of this might be pretty good I might do another year of this and I remember it as clearly as anything and I, I had a five-year plan that I'd sort of developed through school as you taught to do and and I just, five-year plan went out the window, absolutely just got rid of it. And I think in that moment, it, that was what really opened my eyes up to the opportunities that exist in, in ag and especially in Northern Australia. And that was really exciting because it gave me the freedom to pursue anything I found remotely interesting and I think really spurred that sense of curiosity for what was out there. And I'm just, I think, really grateful that there are so many opportunities there for people interested in in ag and, and maybe even for people who don't think they're interested in ag that there are so many sort of lateral movements you can make if you do have your eyes open to what's out there. So yeah, I think that's what made me think about going up and doing another year and, and you know, having that first year understanding how to do what we were doing and, and building capabilities around that, to then shifting my thinking and going, well actually why why are we doing what we're doing? And so what happens, you know, obviously we're breeding cattle in the Northern Territory, but what happens post farm gate? And that sort of fostered an interest in, in live export, which has previously been a, a real red button topic and, and going, well, why do we have to send these cattle overseas? And then you start to learn about how that's actually an economic driver for countries in Southeast Asia and that these feedlots are supporting families of, you know, thousands of people who can then afford to buy the, the meat and Indonesia, say, are a huge importer of Australian grain, so they can afford to buy the Australian noodles and It just, I think, fell back in love with the process of learning. You know, like I touched on earlier in year 11, it was that that continual learning and there always being a new opportunity around the corner, I think was what really, really hooked me in. You mentioned that Beetaloo Station was a a pretty cutting edge operation and it's here that you learn about low stress livestock handling. How is this used and, and why is it important up north? Yeah, and I think that's a good one to go back to live export. I remember seeing the Four Corners report that came out in 2011 that, you know, ultimately resulted in the overnight 
I say overnight, it was over a couple of weeks, but the banning of the live export trade. And so I think I had this preconceived idea of what animal welfare looked like in the Northern Territory. And it wasn't until I got up there and started seeing low stress stock handling being used. And I was like, this is amazing. Why aren't we sharing this story? Because this is something you don't hear about. And I think low stress stock handling for me or efficient livestock handling, whichever way you want to look at it, is it's a no brainer. When we were using it at work, you know, there were so many commercial benefits in terms of being able to handle animals better through the yard so that, you know, there were no sort of injuries to the livestock, but also it was better on your people, it was better on your staff. No one was absolutely bugged at the end of the day because you were using your physical presence so much more efficiently when you understood how the, the livestock reacted to you being there. So I think that's one of the things that as a nation we can be really proud of in the case of live export that we're actually not exporting just an animal but we're exporting a, a set of animal welfare and handling standards into developing countries who are actually adopting our practices and, you know, I think there's about 100 countries that export live animals and we're the only ones that have an exporter supply chain assurance system, which basically mandates that an animal has to be treated in the same way or better as to what we would do in Australia. So I think low stress stock handling for me was something I became extremely passionate about and also really enjoyed the challenge of understanding animal behaviour better. And I think that sort of then led into understanding human behaviour better and down the track, you know, I think was a huge benefit to my development as a leader in having that interest in how sort of your actions impact someone else's or, or another animal's sort of behaviour. Leading on from that, I suppose you mentioned people management sort of became your passion as well as, as livestock management. What was the biggest lesson that you took away from your time as manager at Beedaloo Station? So I wasn't managing the property as a whole, but I was sort of overseeing our day-to-day operations. The biggest thing for me was going into that, I suppose, career change from being a station hand to then being the head stockman, so running our team of people and taking with me into that the idea that, you know, you lead by example. I think that was something that we hear a lot of either through school or through our family unit growing up. And me being a very visual kinesthetic learner, I thought that lead by example meant that if I can do everything, then everyone else will be able to see that and do it. And so I took that into 2018, the first year I was running the camp. And I remember getting halfway through the year and no one could do anything. And I was going, you know, why can't you guys do anything? And they're like, well, you've never taught us. And I was like, but I've been doing it the whole time. And they're like, yeah, you've been doing it, but you've never actually taught us. And I think that sort of clicked for me that there's a whole lot more to leadership than someone being at the front trying to either pull everyone with them and that that just didn't foster a good working environment. It was it was actually, you know, there were plenty of times there that I, looking back, would have made that quite unpleasant because I was not able to communicate what we were trying to do as a team and then I'd get frustrated and probably just go and try and do everything myself. So in terms of you know, having everyone feel valued. There was a lot of people standing around going, what should I be doing when this bloke's running around like a headless chook? So that was probably the biggest thing for me. And I was really fortunate to have had that learning in a tangible sense. And then to have the time to go back and go, why didn't that work? And it all came back to communication and understanding that communication comes in so many forms and just verbal or in body language or in tone but also that people's learning styles are so different from one another's. And I think it gave me a far greater sense of empathy for the people I was working with. And going back to, you know, when I first started and and it not being a particularly enjoyable working experience because of the sort of egos in that initial crew, 
I really wanted to drive a change in either culture or just workplace sort of feel that that everyone felt valued and everyone felt confident to share their ideas and to try having enough autonomy to get the job done and to make controlled mistakes to so that they could learn but that we could still get the job done as a whole to a high standard so I'm really grateful to have made such a <laughs> so, to have made so many mistakes to have been able to learn from them and, and feel supported by Jane and Scotty our managers to then come out the other side and I think hopefully be a, a better leader for it. You've been involved in several industry representative groups and volunteer communities or committees. Let's talk about the Young Livestock Exporters Network specifically and how you got involved with them. Yeah, so I think getting involved with YLN and probably goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, having that curiosity of what happened post Farmgate and obviously being that bridging link between Northern Australian cattle stations and Southeast Asia and then live export being the conduit to get those livestock in market overseas. I really wanted to do a, a voyage myself to see firsthand, you know, what it was like. And so I started trying to get accredited as a stock person and I sort of beat it. I just barked up the wrong tree a few times, didn't really get anywhere. And then it was actually after being involved with the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association Futures Leader Program that I learned of the Young Live Exporter Network, who was founded in 2019. And that was the sort of link that I needed between North Australian Farmgate to live export. And I think why I was attracted to that, because I was sure that I couldn't have been the only one that was eager to learn more about it and also wanted to do more to support the industry and to advocate for it because I could see that there was so much positivity around it that wasn't being relayed back to mainstream media or even just people in the general public in Australia. There was just so many misconceptions and untruths that were being spread by activists or media. And I don't think, you know, media were doing this in a malicious way, but it was just that there was no one sharing the the positive story around live export. Everyone was sort of trying to just keep their head out of the firing line. And I think the other really nice thing about Wyland, it was it was connecting a group of young industry professionals across a really broad network in Australia, especially being a, a national organisation. And I think it, it was probably the timing was right in the sense that I'd worked out roughly how to do my job as an employee uh, and that it was a great opportunity to give back to the industry that, you know, I'd extracted so much from already by then. Really cool to see that network go to encompass over 300 members now and to have run workshops and networking events in nearly every state and territory in Australia. I think we're still shy on a couple, but, you know, I remember a few years ago having seen that there were members in Tasmania. And so just a great example of how when people come together with an idea uh, and a passion for building communities that can be done really effectively through using mediums like social media or websites or anything like that, which in Australia, especially Northern Australia, where it can be really remote and isolated is a fantastic thing and really happy to see that that organisation keep going from sort of strength to strength with no signs of slowing up. It's great. It just sounds like it is growing exponentially and um, it definitely showcases you sort of as a passionate advocate for the ag industry in that broader sense and reaching yeah, a wide, wide audience. I mean, we all have a phone glued to the palm of our hands these days and spreading the good word sort of via media as well because we're constantly seeing the, the bad news, aren't we? Yeah, correct. And so I think, yeah, it's a great thing, as you mentioned, um, this is the side that people aren't seeing and um, if you can spread, spread that, then I think that's an incredible thing. 
Yeah, and it doesn't take much. I think that was one of the um, the big things, the big sort of key messages I wanted to share early on is and use the word exponential. It only takes one person to share a, a positive story or a photo via social media and then for 10 people to share that and say, you know, out of those 10 people, another 10 people share that story. And it is a really effective way of demonstrating transparency through our supply chains, speaking more broadly than, say, Northern Australia. And then to start building trust back into Australian agriculture and back with producers of food and fibre. It's one thing I get sort of frustrated when you hear the term urban-rural divide. I think that's probably a narrative we're creating in our own heads. I like to think of it more as a, a connection and I just think that, you know, as there's less population in rural and remote areas, we're sort of losing that connection. It's still there but it's not as strong. And so I think if we look to sort of build that connection back up, that's going to be a lot more constructive than trying to fix this sort of perceptual divide. You're also an ambassador for Sober in the Country to raise awareness around mental health. How did that come about? Yeah, I think for me, it was really easy to get behind the message of Sober in the Country and probably for a number of reasons, all stemming from that experience in the North. And as a a leader, I remember we had one bloke in our team who would never want to go to the pub, which was difficult for me because I, as many of us are, I think, had this idea that, you know, having fun was synonymous with having a drink. And I, I really more than anything, wanted our workplace culture and team to be all about having fun and enjoying coming to work and being with the people you're there with. And so I was, you know, you know, always asking four or five times, you know, do you want to come to the pub, blah, blah, blah. And I think it, it'll be a perpetual challenge for Northern Australia, especially while it is so isolated, that the places you can go to to socialise are really limited to your, your pubs and your roadside inns or there, there aren't the, the sporting clubs or facilities like that you can go to socialise with other people. So every now and again, he'd come along to the pub and I'd be like, oh, you know, do you want a beer? Do you want a beer? And he'd be like, no, no, no. And, and I'd sort of keep pressuring him to have a beer. And again, not in a malicious way, purely because I just had this belief that, you know, it was fun to have a beer or two. And I remember meeting and listening to Shanna Wan, who's the founder of Sober in the Country. The penny dropped and I was like, this bloke, he doesn't not like going to the pub because he doesn't like drinking. He just doesn't like the pressure that's being put on him to have a drink. And so I, I think I realised in that moment that, you know, I had failed as not only a leader but as a friend that I wasn't supporting him in, you know, the decision he was making to to not have a, have a drink and I was actually making him uncomfortable in that setting and that it could have been a much different sort of scenario if I'd just said, no worries, like if you don't want a beer, can I get you something? Can I get you a, a soda water or a glass of water or lemon squash, whatever. And so that was a real revelation and, and probably made me think, you know, well, why are someone else's decisions or actions, why am I taking that personally? And I went, well, you know, I just, I shouldn't be. It's, it's energy that I could use on something else. But it is a shame that you see it very often. And like I said, you know, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say that at times I've been the one that's put the pressure on for a mate to have a drink, but that that's actually a, a big part of why people don't like coming out and socialising, which can be hugely damaging to individuals in an environment where, the, the again, the opportunities to be with other people are really limited. I think the other part of that too was actually probably at times looking to a drink at the end of a tough day as, as a bit of a vice or as a bit of a, a release. And again, listening to Shanna's story made me realise that in doing that and making a habit out of having a beer after the end of a really tough day or having not one but two or three beers after the end of a tough day, it just starts to really compound a problem without addressing what the problem is and it is it's a hugely effective way of 
relieving any stress or anxiety that might be associated with the day you've just had, but it just compounds and sets up a worse day the next day and, and starts to snowball. And I think, you know, we had, I had a, a really challenging situation where our team culture was not great and there, were, there was a bit of angst amongst some of our team members. And I was sort of taking on that responsibility to try and fix that situation myself. And it was just driving me into a hole. And I think I ended up properly burnt out at the end of it. And when I was sort of, I just I had nothing else in the tank. I went to Scotty and I just said, look, I don't know what else I can do here. And I don't even think Scotty was aware of it because I never communicated that it was a problem. I said, look, oh, this is this is about to break me. Like, I don't know what else I can do. And he just said, oh, it's all right. We'll, we'll just have a talk to him. And they had a talk and it was all fixed. And I went, how good's asking for help <laughs> and not taking it all on yourself. And so I think, yeah, there's those probably and been more more events than that, but have just made me so conscious of how easy it is when you're spending a lot of time by yourself or with small teams that it can seem easier to not ask for help, but that when you do ask for help, then it is so effective at fixing the problems you've got or that you're dealing with. Self-medication is a bandied round term that they will very quickly set up a demise in either yourself or in, in someone else. And and to just be conscious of that. And when you start seeing, you know, when you've got the mate who's the life of the party, wherever they go, and they'll, you know, out drink anyone to actually stop and think, well, why are they doing that? What do they maybe have going on under, under the surface that we don't know about? And then checking in on them or, or if you're finding that you're slipping into that habit and I've probably fallen into that a couple of times going, I probably need to ask for help or reach out and have a conversation with someone that might really help them. So I think, yeah, that okay to say no message is just such a good one and, and really happy to see that getting circulated more and more frequently and to have that culture around drinking in Australia and, and remote Australia changing is, a, I think, a hugely positive thing for agriculture especially while we're talking around sustainability. We talk around sustainability of the environment. We are talking about animal welfare before. How often do we talk about sustainability in people? And you've got these really young people going into leadership positions, either running camps or managing properties, you know, which are valued at hundreds of millions of dollars worth of asset, who have never really been trained in leadership or in, in communication or, or have the skills required of them. And so it is a, it's a hugely stressful role they're stepping into and while there is that belief there that you can have a drink at the end of a tough day it's it's really setting people up to fail and it's unfortunate I think that we've seen it a lot in the last couple of years where people will end up burnt out and absolutely wrecked and leaving northern Australia or leaving agriculture to pursue something else because you know they feel it's a better decision for their physical or mental health but that could all be avoided if there was a better a more positive sort of socializing culture I think that existed. There's so much value in, in that and so much in it for our listeners, depending, it doesn't even matter what capacity they're in or, or what industry they work in. I think that that message definitely rings true right across the board. A hundred percent. And I think it's probably, the, you know, the, the scary part about it is it, it really takes us to be honest with ourselves. If we're getting frustrated with someone because they're not having a drink, well, is that a problem with them or is that a problem with us? And when you stop and have that conversation with yourself, I, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it'd be a funny one to unpack and it has been for me when, when I've taken the time to, to reflect as I did a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Hugh. Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part conversation. Join us for the conclusion in the next episode.
Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website ruralbank.com.au. This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.